I'm going to ask Kevin Kirchner to come forward, um, and you can be turning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. So we've got some ground to cover this morning, um, and Kevin is going to read um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So, First Corinthians 8. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial foods, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if I eat, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Thank you so much, Kevin. This is the word of the Lord to us. So um, we are in this series about consecration, and today we're looking at consecrating our rights and our liberties. And so being set apart, consecration being set apart for God's holy purposes. And so the questions that were being raised um, in the Corinthian church are not necessarily the questions that are being raised today here but they have great application for us. And so I just want to say that the big idea, the way I'm going to approach this is I'm going to tell you the big idea. I'm going to talk about the context a little bit and um, then raise a few points from um, these sections of Scripture. So that's my framework as we're going through um, these passages today. And so the big idea is that our rights are to be exercised in light of our mission. Okay, we're on mission for God and his kingdom, and our rights are to be exercised in light of that. And so in Corinth, 
it was a city where um, it was Gentile pagan. And so there were temples and worship to many idols. Even their governmental officials were considered gods. And there were sacrifices offered. So there were sacrifices, animal sacrifices being offered all around town. And the meat at the market came from the temples where they were doing these sacrifices. And so it's steeped in idol worship. And that's where the church is trying to reach out with the gospel and um, help people come into Christianity. So... Um, I don't know how many of you know much about animal sacrifice, but I read that this is the way it went. They would, a family would bring an animal and that the priest would kill it. And then a third of that meat would be burned on the altar as a sacrifice to whatever deity, whatever god, whatever um, idol was being worshipped. A third of it would be sent home with the family to feed their family. And then a third of it was for the priest. And the priest had the option. If he had had his full of meat, he didn't want it, then they would give it to kind of like a restaurant. They had hospitality rooms in the temple. And people had social functions like birthday parties or anniversary gatherings or promotions or whatever. And they'd invite their friends to come to the temple in one of these hospitality rooms and have a celebration. So it's kind of an esteemed thing to be invited to come and partake and eat of the meat offered. Um, It also, when it was in the market, it was more reasonable. And um, one of the commentators said, doesn't everybody like a good deal? Right. (laughs) And um, in our context, I think there's a lot of us that like a good deal. Right. So um, this is the people were poor. Meat was um, not a real common um, thing. thing that they got to enjoy, and the temple meat was a good bargain. Yet the Christian church was trying to help people come out of these this idol worship. And so what are, what's the wisdom there for the church? And they're raising questions because they're saying, well, isn't it right that we can eat that meat? Because we know that really that idol isn't really a thing. And it's just a piece of wood or something. And so wouldn't it be right? And God's given us everything to enjoy, so wouldn't it be okay to eat this? So let me raise a couple of points from verse 11. Paul doesn't start to answer their questions by just giving a simple answer. He starts talking about love, and he starts talking about knowledge. And so he says knowledge puffs up, or it can make you haughty, it can make you proud. And um, love builds up. And so he says, before we start to get into the answer, let's just think about the motivation. And um, he doesn't say that knowledge is a bad thing, but he says love is most important. And John Calvin said it this way, no learning is commendable that is not dipped in the love of God. No learning is commendable. If it's not dipped in the love of God, I think all of us could um, put that quote somewhere, because don't you know that we get into arguments so often because we hold a different view or a different opinion. But is it dipped in love? And even the way I'm saying it, is it dipped in love? All right. Um, He also 
wants to point out to them that they're not living in a bubble. It's not just these that understand their great freedom that are living on this earth, but they're actually on mission and people are watching how they live. And so you need to exercise your rights in a way that causes the weaker brothers or sisters not to stumble. Your actions can destroy a weaker person. And so, yes, your actions may be based on what you know, but are they disregarding the state of the person that's struggling and trying to understand? It wasn't that eating meat was wrong, but it has to be taken in light of the decision and how it impacts those that are just coming out of paganism, that are just coming out of idol worship. How will this affect their faith if they see you going to this place where idols are worshipped and eating this meat. And so the weaker person was the one who maybe was less clear on whether there really was one God, because when they went anywhere near that temple, they start the temple of idol worship, any of those temples. Anytime they went near that, they started remembering and thinking about what they had been ingrained in and grown up with. And they were probably still trying to figure out, you know, these um, these Christians say there's one God. But we've always worshipped these many gods. And so they're trying to figure it out. And so, again, what are you modeling? And is it helpful for them? Does it make it clear or does it make them confused? All right. So as far as application goes... I thought about this, and I, um, I just want to put the disclaimer, I'm probably going to offend somebody in the room by the time we're finished with this. And I did not write this sermon um, because of any conversations that or questions that any of you have um, raised with me lately. All right? So, but if you're going to get offended, get offended with the word of the Lord and stay with that struggle until you find the truth. And I'm not saying that I've got it all figured out. I've not preached on food offered to idols before, but I'm giving it my best shot based on what the Lord's helped me to see. So let's let's go here together. All right, let's talk about yoga. And um, <clears throat> yoga, in my understanding, is exercise that really helps you stretch and um, relax and um, calm down. I hear many benefits. But it's got spiritual roots in Eastern religion. And so it might be my right as a Christian to say, I can do yoga. I can practice yoga. And I need the exercise and I need the agility and the limberness. I should do this. But what is maybe I can go there and not practice any of the like, let's empty our minds. Because, you know, as Christians, we don't empty our minds. We want to fill our minds and put our minds on the Lord. And maybe I can make that transition in the class. And I maybe don't go into the religious aspects of it or the spiritual. They would call it the spiritual aspects of it. I focus on the Lord. But are the people in the room being drawn to the Lord and worshiping the Lord? Or if I'm trying to disciple a new believer and invite them to go to yoga class with me, Am I possibly confusing them because they find this spirituality and this peace, but it's not connected to Jesus? All right? 
Just an example, something to think about. All right, we are not in the context of um, where we're trying to help people come into Christian faith in an area where there's all this overt idol worship and animal sacrifice. But we are trying to help people come into the faith that are coming from different faiths. And so let's just say hypothetically that we really like um, falafel and baklava. And we decide that we're going to start making some social outings and we're going to get on the van, the Gold Avenue Church van, and we're going to go to the mosque because they're going to have a dinner and they're going to serve this amazing falafel and they're going to have baklava. Or we're going to go out to the Hindu temple out towards um, Lowell. And they are going to have a meal. Well, we're going to have a fellowship. It's going to be fellowship. It's our right to have fellowship. And it's our right to enjoy really wonderful food. And so we're going to do that. But we need to think about what is the message that we're sending. And am I going to exercise my right because I like this particular kind of food by taking people to a place where they worship another somebody other than the one true God, what would I be doing and what would be more preferable? What would be more helpful? All right. Um, I tried to think of what would be an idol in our culture. And I've been, I don't watch TV very often. Dane has to show me how the thing goes on and how to find a channel. I just don't watch it very much. But we have had it on a little bit lately. And I'm just appalled at the gambling commercials. There's two gambling commercials, followed by one that says this is addictive, and if you have a problem, call this number, followed by two more gambling commercials. Like, I don't know if we're just watching that one particular channel. Can I get a witness? Is somebody else seeing these? All right. So what if we decide we're going to go down to Gun Lake Casino because they've got this amazing all-you-can-eat buffet for a really low price? And so we're going to start going there for our fellowships. We're not going to the mosque. We're going down to the Gun Lake Casino. But what if we're trying to witness to people who have been coming out of or have a gambling addiction? Is this going to be beneficial to them? Is it going to be helpful? All right, a true story. Um, Back a number of years ago, there was a youth group volunteer from a Christian university serving in the youth group ministry. The youth group leaders, after youth group met, decided to go to the bar. And they were all ordering a beer. And so this, this student leader was over 21, we'll say, and <clears throat> ordered a beer. All right. What the rest of the youth group leaders didn't know is that she was a recovering alcoholic. And that was the beginning of her going back into addiction. And so did they have a right? They were all over. They were legal age. You know, scripture gives reasonable understanding that wine in moderation is okay. All right, I said I might offend somebody. Just stay with me. But by exercising a right but not thinking or knowing the people that you're with, was that beneficial or not? Paul ends up with chapter 8 saying, 
If I, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, he says, I will never eat meat again. All the vegetarians in the room are really excited about that. But he's, he goes beyond, he doesn't just say, I won't eat idol meat offered to idols, but he says, I'll never meat, eat any meat. I care so much about people and their walk with the Lord. Our rights are to be exercised in light of mission. All right, we're moving on to chapter 9 now. And this chapter 9, he's trying to explain, he's trying to give another argument to answer their question about, don't we have our rights? And so here we go. I'm going to read verses 1 to 18. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends the flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple and that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. And I am not writing this in hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. But then... Okay, what then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Well, friends, um, I've also never preached about how a pastor should, you know, it's okay to be paid to do it. And it sounds like they're questioning, 
whether or not it's okay or should they should pay their pastor. And actually, he goes to this whole argument about how it's right for them to pay those that are serving the church. But actually, what he's trying to do, this is so crazy. Like, he's actually over four chapters. We're just covering two of them. He's trying to clarify liberties and rights and how they have to come under the kingdom and the priorities of the kingdom. And so he's making this argument over four chapters. We're just doing it over one. But what he's saying is, yes, there's an absolute right for those that are serving in ministry to be paid. But I'm choosing to lay down that right for the purpose of the kingdom. And so the big idea of this part, I think, is our rights can be voluntarily laid down for the sake of the gospel. All right. We can have rights. And we can choose not to exercise them. We can lay them down for the sake of the gospel. Now, in the context, he's saying the other apostles were typically being paid, verse 4, and they were traveling with their spouses, verse 5. And Paul, it's interesting. I love it. He goes back. It is written. It is written in the Old Testament. And he goes back to his scripture to prove his point about what. how do we measure what's right and wrong. We always go to the word. Paul's modeling this for us, and he says in the Old Testament, Scripture says it's okay to do this because the ox shouldn't be muzzled. Well, that in itself is a really interesting study, and I looked it up, but I don't have time to tell you about it. But just think about it. A hungry animal that's having to do the work of trying to separate the seeds from the shaft, and um, it can eat a couple of bites along the way, right? All right. So, uh, animal rights, we love that. All right, I digress. Points from verse 12. Um, Paul says, we do not use this right for material support or companionship. He says, we've got the right, but we don't use it. We put up with anything to not hinder the gospel. And as I thought about it, I thought, why is he putting, making such a point about he's choosing not to get paid? But do you know there are some things that it's really hard to walk in if you're being paid by a group of people and you say something they don't like, they can, you know, fire you or whatever. Um, If you come in and you don't, you are not paying the person anything, they can, they really are at much more freedom to tell you even the hard things and they don't risk anything. And I think it might be this that Paul's saying, I feel like I need to say things to you that you're not going to like. And I also don't want you to feel like I'm telling you just what you want to hear. And so there's not going to be any money involved in this relationship. Because he says, I don't want to do anything to hinder the gospel. That word hinder means to impede, to block, or to prevent the progress of. And so Paul voluntarily lays down his rights to be paid. And it's an illustration going back to chapter 8, about don't we have a right to eat this bargain meat? Because we know we're free. All right. So I want you to think back to Nancy's sermon, where she talked to us about consecrating our whole selves, being wholehearted devotion to the Lord. And so are we so wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord that we not only, um, like in this situation he's saying, We're not taking our spouses with us or we're choosing not to have spouses. We're consecrating our sexuality for the purpose of the gospel. 
He's also, he's just pointing them to that wholehearted consecration and thinking about it in terms of our rights. Now, I thought about this, another true story. Our nephew is over and niece are over in Papua New Guinea with their three little children. They're missionaries there. They have to take a boat four hours across the open ocean to get to the island. They have to go straight up a couple of miles up the mountain to get to where the tribal people are, that they're trying to learn the language so they can um, translate into a Bible and hopefully and someday plant a church. So they have these two little huts that they've built, and while they were home on sabbatical or um, furlough, um, they had one of the tribal people agreed to watch their home security. And um, during the time that they were on furlough, a group burned it, stripped all the electrical wiring and anything of value out of the home. So this is not right, right? This is not right. Um, and they have the right to prosecute. That meant bringing in police across the ocean to come over. They have to pay their, their board and wages while they're there to investigate this to decide if a crime has happened. And they decide, yes, a crime has happened. And now their choice is, do they prosecute? Do they hold these people accountable for what they did? Well, that would be their right. And in some ways it seems like, oh, well, if they do that, then, of course, hopefully it discourages this kind of activity from happening again by holding accountable. And yet the crime, the penalty for this is life imprisonment. And for this guilty thing of burning somebody else's house, life in prison. And it's a shame-based culture. And so if they're shamed and their families, because it's communal culture, then will they ever be able to build relationship again so that they can learn the language, so they can translate into a Bible, so that hopefully they can share the gospel, so that they can plant a church there? And so they're faced with this dilemma. Do we exercise our right and prosecute? Or do we lay down that right for the sake of the gospel and building relationship and trying to move forward? And so these are the kind of things that gets complicated. And let's just admit it. Not everything is real clear. Sometimes there's gray areas. All right, let's go on. Chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. He says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law because I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So I think the big idea there is in verse 22, I've become all things to all people so that 
for the purpose of, by all possible means, I might save some. By all possible means, meaning exercising or laying down rights and liberties in order to save. And so Paul reminds us that the Great Commission is a cross-cultural mission in nature. He says, I'm trying to become all things to all people. Does that mean he doesn't know who his identity is? Actually, his identity is really secure because it's in Christ. That if you're finding your identity in Christ, then you can, you can go into different cultures. You can cross different backgrounds. Three times he says that he's trying to win people. So he's emphasizing that. I'm to win some, to win, to win. And he's trying to reach all the people. He says he's trying to reach the Jews and those under the law, those strict Pharisees. He's trying to reach those that are not under the law, like the Gentile. He's trying to reach the weak, like those that are emerging and growing in their faith, the new Christians. And I want to point out that to the weak, he didn't come in strong. He became weak. And one of the commentators said this is a very important missional principle. You don't come in with a savior mentality and you know it all. You come in humble and weak knowing that you needed grace just like they need grace. You need healing just like they need healing. You need forgiveness just like they need forgiveness. And so you come in weak in order to say we all need Jesus. We all need this gospel of forgiveness. All right, who are we trying to reach? And who are we supposed to become like? And here's some thoughts. How do we do this? I think it's to know them, to be curious and observant. Come in with love and remember that love isn't deceived in thinking that it knows it all and not too high on themselves. Be humble, be honoring of others. Be meek, which means controlled strength. It doesn't mean be weak, but have controlled strength. And that's what I think he meant by coming in weak. Ask questions and listen more when you're starting to try to build a relationship. Be sensitive to the other person's needs, their concerns, their background, and look for common ground. Being wise in the way that you express your opinions, your views, what are your traditions? I mean, how many of you, when you're feeling kind of uncomfortable, you start talking about yourself and, well, my family always did it this way and we did this and blah, 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 rather than going, I'm curious, what was your family like growing up? What were your traditions? Because we're trying to say, this feels uncomfortable to me and so I want to tell you what I'm used to, rather than going, How did this come to be, and have you always done it this way, and can you see the difference? And so being curious about them, looking for common ground, and being very wise in how you express your opinions and your views, recognizing that your knowledge may not be full or accurate. Okay, now becoming like others does not mean that we forsake God's word or his ways. And so we don't compromise in morality, and we hold to the truth, okay? So he he said that, like, I'm not under the law, but I am under Christ's law, right? Paul said that, like, I am still living by morality. 
But in all disputable matters, all the gray areas, show charity. And so I want to ask you, who are we trying to win? Who are we trying to take the gospel to? We're trying to take the gospel to Republicans. And we're trying to take the gospel to Democrats. And we're trying to take the gospel to libertarians or those that just say, I pick and choose in any given election. We're trying to win over to Christ those who support vaccine mandates. And we're trying to win over to Christ those who are anti-vaxxers and those who just are really cautious about new vaccines or medicines and want to see a little bit of a track record before they make a decision. We're trying to win over United States citizens, and we're trying to win over illegal immigrants, and we're trying to win over those that have green cards and naturalized citizens. We're trying to share the gospel with the homeless, and we're trying to share the gospel with condo owners and homeowners that some of them live right here on the west side and some live out of ways. And so, therefore, they've got different priorities, different viewpoints on just about everything. Taxes, government. We're trying to reach those who eat plant-based diets and keto diets and vegetarians and vegans and gluten-free. Yes, yes. We're trying to reach college students and we're trying to reach kindergartners. We're trying to reach homeschooled and public schooled and Christian schooled and their teachers, whether they're serving remote or in the classroom. And just friends, think about this, like just kind of go, like stretch my mind and how do we show love and how do we think about entering into conversations with God? All things are possible. And we're looking at this person as an image bearer of God who needs the gospel if they don't know Jesus. And so filled with God's love, we become aware of our biases, our prejudices, our preferences, our opinions. And the Lord helps us to watch carefully that our knowledge isn't causing us to puff up and become a matter of pride that can cause a weaker person to stumble. Our freedoms should be less important to us than strengthening the faith of our brother or sister in Christ. We are here today, most of us, I'm guessing, are American citizens with certain inalienable rights. But foremost, we're kingdom citizens, and we're called to love, and our assignment is to go and make disciples. All right, application. I want to ask you all, if you're on social media, to go back and look over your post over the last couple of years. How are the Republicans and the Democrats and the Libertarians? Are you representing Christ? Are you getting into conversations that maybe can't be nuanced on Twitter and you're just shooting off your thoughts? Is it going to be helpful in the long run if they go back and look at your feed? It might just be eye-opening to think about. Am I alienating people that it may be the very person or coworker or neighbor or 
the dollar store worker that I'm trying to reach. I also want you to just think about, are there ways that you've exercised your rights and your freedoms that maybe are quite self-focused and maybe not mission-minded? We can choose to lay down our rights and exercise our freedoms or not exercise them for the sake of the gospel. And in so doing, we're living very focused lives. And I'm going to finish. Let's look at the end of chapter 9, starting with verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So the big idea, I believe, is that God empowers us to run to get the prize. And he gives this image of being athletes in an arena. How many of you know when you're in an arena watching the Olympics, you're probably not daydreaming and going off looking at everything else. Like It's like the action is there. You are focused. Well, he's saying this is what the world's doing. He's watching you. He's watching you. They're watching you. They're listening to what you're saying. They're watching how you interact with people. And he says, run. And that means, that Greek word means, it's a constant, continuous pace. And we're not running a sprint. We're running a marathon. And, but we need to keep a constant, continuous pace and keep focused on the race and the prize. Well, what is the race that we're doing? We're trying to help share the good news of Jesus with the world. And what we're trying to do is that those bystanders in the arena would be so compelled by our love and our grace and our joy, our kindness, our respectfulness, that they quit being bystanders and they get in the arena with us and join in the race, right? So I really think that it's not like we're trying to get there faster. We're trying to get there with more. And it's diverse people. It's people from all backgrounds coming together across that line into the kingdom of God. And so in order to win others, it's our right, it's our joy to lay down our freedoms and rights when the Lord leads for the purpose of connecting people with the gospel. And who does this best? But Jesus himself. And this is why we're getting ready to focus on the meal, the one true sacrifice who laid down his freedoms and his rights for us.